Psalm 14. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a boy of probably about five or six uh, years of age, I'll never forget my dad and I were standing on the steps of a small church outside of Philadelphia, and there was an elderly man coming down the steps, and my dad turned and he introduced me to him. And he said, Nick, this is a very important man. He, he would become a family friend. Uh, his name was Cornelius Van Tilly. He was one of the greatest thinkers in the history of the church, certainly in the 20th century. Um, he was a professor of apologetics at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and one of the greatest minds, arguably, in the history of the church. Um, and I would go on after I was converted to understand how important uh, Cornelius Van Til was as a thinker, as a philosopher, as an apologist. Uh, but one of the things that I gleaned from him was the simple way in which he understood the world in which we lived and, and could relate things about God and about the human heart and about the nature of man to those things uh, with this, this almost childlike simplicity. Uh, Dr. Van Til often used this story. He would take the train from Philadelphia to Trenton, my mom told me this story once, before I tell you the story I was getting to, he'd take the train and uh, he would ask my parents to take him to the train station. And they did this for months. And my mom said to him at one point, she said, Dr. Vantil, why, why are you going to Trenton, New Jersey on the train all the time? Why are we doing this? And here he had met a man in a coffee shop just a very ordinary man in a coffee shop, and he had decided he was going to meet with him and witness to him. And so he would take that train to Trenton every day for months to meet with that man to witness to him. Uh, Dr. Van Til, as I said, had this simple way of relating the things of God and of the human heart in everyday illustrations. And he said once, he said famously, I once saw a little girl sitting on her daddy's lap on a train. I often wondered if it wasn't that train he would take to Trenton, New Jersey. I once saw a little girl sitting on her daddy's lap on a train. She slapped her daddy in the face. She could not have done so if she had not been held by her daddy on his knee. I love that. The non-Christian needs the truth of the Christian religion in order to attack it. Dr. Van Til said, as a child needs to sit on the lap of his father in order to slap his father's face, so the unbeliever as a creature needs God, the creator, and providential controller of the universe in order to oppose this God. Now, I read you that because 
This is one of the great psalms that teaches those truths. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It doesn't matter what the fool says. It doesn't matter that the fool denies God. It doesn't matter that the fool has convinced himself or herself that there is no God. It doesn't change the fact that everything that that person does is borrowed capital. Dr. Van Til loved that phraseology, borrowed capital. In order to deny God, men have to use their very perverted understanding and reasoning to suppress the truth about God. The very reasoning that God gives them by nature, they take and they utilize as a tool in order to suppress the truth about God. And here in this psalm, this great psalm about the natural depravity of the unbelieving world and the utter folly and foolishness of the unbeliever to deny the existence of God, to demand proofs, proofs about God, or in his heart or her heart, to say there is no God. We see that David is setting out for us this beautiful teaching about how the believer is to relate in light of the unbeliever in the world and in the church, mocking the believer for trusting a God who doesn't seem to be working for the believer. Now, We're going to see three things tonight. First, we're going to consider the folly of unbelief. And then secondly, we are going to consider uh, the fruit of unbelief. And then finally, the faith of the regenerate. The folly of unbelief, the fruit of unbelief, and the faith of the regenerate. We'll notice that David enters in in this great psalm, and he says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Uh, It was John Calvin who famously at the beginning of his Institutes of the Christian Religion talked about what we call the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine. Everybody you meet, starting with yourself, has a sense of having been created by God. The Apostle Paul will talk about this in Romans 1. He will say that what may be known of God is manifest in all men because God has shown it to them Nevertheless, they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. Calvin will actually say at the outset of the Institutes, uh, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty, ever renewing its memory. He repeatedly sheds fresh drops. Since therefore all men, men one and all, perceive that there is a God and that he is their maker, they are condemned by their own testimony because they have failed to honor him and to consecrate their lives to his will. Um, Calvin is really picking up on the teaching of Scripture. The Scripture everywhere is affirming and presupposing the existence of God. We don't argue for evidences about God. God is the very environment in which we live and move and have our being. I had a, a seminary professor who's now with the Lord who uh, said to our class once, he said, uh, give me evidences of God's existence. And somebody yelled out, the trees, <laughs> the birds. <laughs> other people yelled out other things. And he looked out and he said, you're proof of God's existence. You are the Imago Dei. You are proof that God exists. You wouldn't be here if God didn't exist. You are the very image of God. You are the greatest proof that God exists. And yet we, as those that God has uniquely made in his image, that God has uniquely invested with uh, wisdom and understanding and reasoning capacities and a moral compass and a conscience and, and all of those things that we have as part of our faculty as image bearers of God. We, who have been given all of that, are the very ones the psalmist says here by nature. The fool says there is no God. Now, 
there is an important thing that we have to consider when we first look at the folly of unbelief. The Jews, for many, many, many millennia, uh, the unbelieving Jews, would often look at this psalm and they would say, well, what David is doing is he is contrasting the nations outside of Israel from Israel. And he's saying, all of the nations outside of Israel, they are foolish because they do not know God, and they are the foolish ones, but Israel... And the people of Israel, the old covenant people of God, we are the enlightened ones. We've been given the law. We have the the very word of God. We've been given the moral instruction from God. We are not like the nations. This is, by the way, you can't even understand your Bible if you don't get this. This is the whole argument the Apostle Paul makes in Romans and Galatians against those that attack the gospel, is that the Israelites thought that they were better. They thought that what they were by nature was different than everyone else in all of humanity. Now, we, we can't conclude that that's what David is saying in this psalm. Notice that David says here, the fool is said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, that, that is an absolute statement. Um, the Apostle Paul will pick this up as, again in Romans 3. And he will say, whether you are a Jew or a Greek... No matter what your descent, no matter what your nationality, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your upbringing, it doesn't matter who you are. There's none who does good. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There are none who by nature are God-loving, God-seeking, God-worshipping, God-glorifying men and women in this fallen world. Now, that is supremely important. Um, We all have to come to terms with the fact that that includes us by nature. We are no better than anyone else by nature. It doesn't matter if we have heard the gospel and the truth of the gospel from our very earliest memories. It doesn't matter that I grew up around one of the greatest Christian thinkers in the history of Christianity. By nature, we do not know God. We do not do good. We do not understand. Now, that begs the question, what about the people that seem to be good people? Because there's lots of nice and happy and kind people. There are lots of charming people. I like charming people. I don't like ornery people. I want to hang out with charming people. Um, I want to hang out with interesting people. I want to hang out with people who seem very kind and compassionate rather than people that are mean, angry, and bitter. And I'm sure you are joining me on that, in that expression, that you like kind people. Well, there are, by God's common grace, there are people that seem to be good. Um, I'll give you a story to help us understand, I think, what the scriptures say about people by nature. I had a pastor once who told a story. He said, imagine that you had a single mother and she had a little girl. And the father had left. He had been verbally abusive. She had been through all kinds of tragic um, hardship and endured abuse. She had survived. She went on to get a job. And she went on to do everything for that little girl. She was always there for her. She read her to sleep every night. She was always doing everything for that little girl. She provided for her education. She, she really gave her life for that little girl, but she never told her that she was a sinner and that she needed a savior. 
And my pastor from many years ago said, that woman raised her daughter to be a rebel against the king of heaven. Now that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. People don't like to hear that. They like to say, well, but, but she was doing the best she could. By nature, all men know that there's a God, and if they don't worship him, if they don't trust him, if they don't call on him, they are in their hearts saying there is no God. Now, the psalmist is setting out the folly of unbelief. He, he's not talking about famous atheists that like to get up and debate Christian apologists. He is not talking about Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchin and the many other famous atheists of our day and, and of our lifetime. He is talking about church members. He is talking about people in the world. He is talking about men and women and boys and girls, no matter who they are, who, Augustine says, would be too ashamed to verbalize it, nevertheless think it in their hearts and live and act as if there is no God. This is, this is what Jonathan Edwards called practical atheism. People going through their life, they have their beautiful homes, they have their life together, they keep their job, they excel, they benefit society, they do everything that they need to do. Everything is neat and tidy. They are even a model to other neighbors around them. Their neighbors like their yard better than they like their own yard, and yet they are practical atheists. They never feel their need for the Lord. They never call on him. They don't confess their sin. They don't worship him. They don't seek to use their lives, their time, their resources in service of the great king of heaven. And notice that as David is unpacking the folly of unbelief, and it is interesting to note, isn't it, that um, to say that a man or woman, boy or girl, who in his or her heart says there is no God is foolish, means that they have the light of God in them to some sense, and they are denying it. Isn't that fascinating? The very fact that David calls them foolish is a proof that they are in some way squandering what it is that God has revealed about himself in them and all around them and to them. Now notice when David is unpacking this idea of um, foolishness, he, notice he says they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. Now this is supremely important. Tim Keller, uh, I think rightly says, foolishness is not a function of your intelligence or your mental furniture. You have to think about this. There are plenty of very dumb people that deny God in their heart. There are plenty of dumb people, intellectually dumb people, who say there is no God in their heart. There are plenty of intellectual people who say there is no God in their heart. There are plenty of poor, unintelligent people who trust the Lord and love him. And there are plenty of examples of intellectual people who trust the Lord Jesus Christ and love him. So, foolishness, practical atheism, is not a function of your intelligence or your mental furniture. Keller says foolishness is a function of how you use your intelligence or your mental furniture. He says everyone is born foolish. It's like a deposit in us. And it's foolishness in us that distorts our sense of God's reality. Now, what David is going to say 
in this psalm at one and the same time is that the foolishness of the mind of the unbeliever and the foolishness of the actions and life of the unbeliever are mutually informing one another. So, so the unbeliever desires evil things, desires sin, wants to be living in the world, wants to be left alone to live like the world, and therefore then the intellect of the unbelieving mind is affected so that the, the unbeliever seeks to use their intellectual powers that God gives them to suppress the truth about God. Um, Keller will often tell the story about how when college students, I guess he pastored in Redeemer in New York, would go off to college, students would go through high school, they'd go off to college, they'd come home and they'd start having these intellectual doubts about the Bible. They'd start to say, well, I mean, how do I know that the Bible is really God's word? And, and Keller said he had learned this from an old pastor. He, he said he would always say, so who are you sleeping with? And they'd always be like, how did you know? Because the human heart loves sin. And once the human heart goes after those sins that it loves, and once it begins to do abominable things, and once it wants to be liberated to do more of those, it will necessarily use the intellect and the will and the emotions to try to suppress the truth about God and to convince themselves that there is no God. It's one of the sad marks of life. I have watched in my short life so many people who at one time professed faith in Christ give themselves over to wicked lifestyles and then begin slowly and then more rapidly to deny everything that they believed before. It happens all the time. I have known so many. Um, I've been involved with ministries. I've had very close friends it's happened to. Uh, David is warning us about the folly. The Holy Spirit is warning us about the folly of giving ourselves over to this practical atheism. Um, notice the language of verse 3. They have all turned aside. Um, you think of the language of Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, um, the sooner we come to terms with the fact that this includes us, the better. The sooner we come to terms with the fact that this is a definition of what I am like by nature. Now, my life, my life was marked by this. I was openly rebellious. I, I was... I was out in the far country. You know, I was the prodigal living off my dad's borrowed capital while I'm kicking him in the shins. I was in the deep, far recesses of the far country, and God had mercy on me. Now, lots of other people never go out into the far country. They never act out what's in their hearts. They never act out on it. They, they keep it tucked away. They keep, a, they keep a tight lock on it. They keep it in a, in a little room locked away so the world can't see what's going on in there. But it's in there. It's in there. It's in everybody's mind and heart. Um, it, we're carrying it around with us constantly by nature. Um, David says this is what it means to be a fool. 
It's the only description. That's the only apt description of this. This is what it means to be a fool. Now, David is going to go on, and he is going to um, he is going to go and talk about the fruit of unbelief. Now, this is this is part of the issue of the folly of unbelief. So, if it's foolish for us or anyone to say in their heart there is no God, if it's fully foolish for men to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, then then why is it foolish? Why? And and David here is going to contrast. Uh, the unbelief uh, of the fool with the fruit of the unbelief of the fool that is seen against how they are treating God's people. So when men and women and boys and girls begin to act out and live out the depravity of their hearts, when they begin to uh, dabble with doubts and skepticism and they start to they start to try to convince themselves that there is no God, they inevitably start to look at others who are trusting God, like you, who worship God, who are walking in the light as he is in the light, who are not afraid to have their deeds exposed and to be dealt with honestly before the Lord and who are acknowledging their need for Jesus Christ, they will inevitably turn all of their malice against them in order to make themselves feel better about their unbelief. And they will especially latch on to the fact that it doesn't look like God is helping them. Now, I'll tell you a story to give you a sense of this. Uh, uh, Nabil Koresh, I believe that's his name, the um, convert from Islam to Christianity who just died, I probably didn't say that correctly, who just died of cancer at 34, uh, had written that book about um, uh, seeking Allah, finding Jesus, is that what it was called? And uh, my sister was telling me, they, their church supports a missionary in Pakistan, a PCA church here locally, um, and that minister came and they were talking about him and uh, the missionary told them, you know, in the Islamic world, they're mocking him now that he's dead. And they're saying, seeking Jesus, finding cancer. They're writing books, mocking him. Um, that's what the wicked world does. The wicked world mocks Christians. Why isn't God helping them? Why doesn't this God that they trusted seem to be there on their side? If God is God and they know that he is the triune God, God of Scripture, they know that he is God, and yet, yet they have suppressed that truth and unrighteousness, and so then the next step is to, to spurn those who are trusting in that God. Notice David says in verse 4, Have they no knowledge, all these evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread? So you see, David sees in this this progression that the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, then spends his or her energy trying to oppress and suppress and mock and deride those who are trusting God as if they are eating up bread. Now, notice, notice the, uh, the fruit of the folly of unbelief. Notice verse 5. David says, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. Isn't that interesting? The God that men love to suppress by nature. You know, I didn't point this out at the beginning, but in the Hebrew, the words um, there is are not actually in the Hebrew text in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, no, God, no. The fool has said in his heart, no, God, stay away. And David says, but that God is with the generation of the righteous. That God is for his people. That God is always with his people. That God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
that guy said, God has said, I will, I will lift up a standard against the enemy when he comes against you. That God has said, I will not let the plans of the evil prosper against you. That God has said, I, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That God has said, whoever comes to me on the last day, I will raise him up. That God has said, I ever live to make intercession for you. And yet the wicked world in their ignorance and their willful disobedience and their willful atheism and their willful embracing of wickedness and evil um, don't understand and they don't see and they don't know. Uh, John Calvin uh, says the psalmist here inveighs against those giants who mock at the faithful for their simplicity in calmly expecting in their distress that God will show himself to be their deliverer. And certainly, nothing seems more irrational to the flesh than to betake ourselves to God when yet he certainly, uh, when he does not relieve us from our calamities. Now, what, what Calvin is saying is there are so many times when believers trust in the Lord and they get cancer. They trust in the Lord and hardship comes. They trust in the Lord and the bottom seems to fall out. They trust in the Lord and one of their children dies. And it's not because they didn't have enough faith. That's a wicked lie of Satan. That, 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 will, crush, that will crush you to the grave to believe that if you just had enough faith, nothing bad is going to happen to you. In fact, the scripture says that those who have the greatest faith often have the greatest afflictions. And so Calvin says there's a simplicity to that. There is, a, there is a beautiful spiritual simplicity to knowing that the Lord our God, who's going to raise us up on the last day, who is going to give us everlasting life. I want you to think about this. The God you profess to believe in is one day going to give you life forever without any sorrow or sickness. All of us, if you're a believer, we're going to be together forever, forever. No death, no sorrow, no pain, no sickness, but in this life, hardship, trials, persecutions, distresses, needs, turmoils, disappointments, letdowns, not, not without joys, not without good things, not without good times and memories and, and, and so many expressions of God's bounty and goodness. Of course he gives us those things. But coupled with those things, distresses and tribulations and the wicked world all around you and the unbeliever in the church who in his or her heart says there is no God is waiting to pounce on you when those hardships come. And David recognizes that. And yet he recognizes that God is with the generation of the righteous. And notice the language of verse 6. The unbeliever, the practical atheist, the wicked man or woman who suppresses the truth about God, David says, would shame the plans of the poor. He's talking about those that are humble and broken and trusting the Lord. They would shame the plans of the poor. But notice the language, but the Lord is his refuge. Now, David is a man who knows this better than almost anybody. David is the man after God's own heart. There is only one person in the whole Bible other than the beloved son of God who is said to be a man after God's own heart. That is David. There was, there was only one king that God specially chose 
from among the people immediately and directly by himself and anointed him to be king and set him on the throne and measured every other king throughout Israel's history against that, and that is David. And no one knew hardships like David knew hardships. And yet that David who is constantly chased by Saul, who is constantly living in caves in fear for his life, not knowing what the next day is going to bring. That David, who has large promises, God says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a son. He's going to sit on your throne forever. Nobody got promises like this. That David knew unbelievable hardships and, and knew the deriding of the wicked. He knew he knew the malice, he knew the scoffing of men and women that suppressed the truth, and yet that David could say, in the midst of all that, in the midst of them acting like that, the futility of their actions are shown in the fact that the Lord is the refuge of the one that trusts in him. He is the hiding place. Now, that's good news for us if we're trusting in the Lord. That's not good news for the one who is saying in his or her heart, there is no God or no God. Now, there is a third dimension to this psalm, and, and it's difficult, because if you're reading this psalm at face value, you can understand why there are um, those attempts to say that David is distinguishing between the unbelieving nations and Israel. Because it seems that there's these two groups, right? The fool says in his heart, no God, or there is no God. And, and then the righteous, the Lord is with the righteous, and the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. So, so there seems to be a, a very clear mark of delineation between two groups of people, and there is. And yet, and you have to listen carefully, and yet in the same psalm, David says repeatedly, there is none good, not even one. Now, if you're reading this with any sort of intellectual honesty, you would have to say, I'm struggling with that. David has just said there is nobody good. Everybody is corrupt. Everyone has gone astray, but the Lord is with the righteous. <laughs> what in the world? What in the world is going on? Well, uh, when we consider the faith here of those that are regenerate and trusting the Lord, we have to understand, first of all, that that absolute statement, there is none righteous, no, not one, there is none who does good, applies to every single person across the board, no matter who it is. Everybody we rub shoulders with, starting with ourselves, are included in that. Um, that is absolutely true of everybody. And there was only one of whom it was not true, the Lord Jesus. There's only one man who ever walked the face of the earth of whom it could not be said there is none good, not even one. They have all turned away. They are all corrupt. They are all abominable and have done abominable, abominable deeds. That's a hard word to say, by the way. Um, the Lord Jesus was holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that in every way he was made like us, yet without sin. Jesus himself, throughout the Gospels, constantly said, if I've done evil, bear witness of the evil. Um, he bore witness to his own sinlessness when he said, he who comes from above is above all, and there's no unrighteousness in him. 
Um, even the demons, we saw that this morning, even the demons knew that he was the sinless son of God. They called him the Holy One of God. Um, the soldier at the foot of the cross said, truly, this is the son of God. This is a righteous man. One of the thieves, when he repented on the cross, said, this man has done nothing wrong. Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with that just man because I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. So Jesus bore witness to his sinlessness. The disciples bear witness to his sinlessness. Demons bear witness to his sinlessness. And even those that put him on the cross bear witness to his sinlessness. Now that means that this psalm is about the Lord Jesus. That means that the Lord Jesus came and this psalm in one sense had to be appropriated by him. And he could read this psalm and he could see in the psalm that he was the generation. He was the righteous one. He could see in the psalm that he was the one that called on the Lord. He could see in the psalm that the Lord was his refuge, that his father was his hiding place. His father was his, his refuge. And yet, notice David is crying out as if it's true about himself. David knows that God has redeemed him. David knows that he's given him a new heart. David is hoping in God's salvation. David is looking forward to the coming Christ. David is looking forward to the promise of salvation. Notice verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. David knows that God has promised a redeemer and that he's going to come to the church and that he's going to come out of the church and that everybody who's trusting him is included in the generation of the righteous because they're united to Jesus by faith and they are safe in him and they are righteous in him. They are justified in him. They are clothed in his righteousness they now find God to be their hiding place, and they have hearts that abhor evil and long to do what's pleasing to the Lord. Now, it's interesting, David here in verse 7, I think, envisions the Ark of the Covenant, because remember, wherever the Ark was, God was. And wherever the Ark was, there was victory for Israel, and there was salvation and deliverance. And remember, David brought the ark back up into Israel, and he brought it up on the hill where the temple would be built later. And remember, whenever the ark was brought in, and whenever the ark came out with Israel, wherever the ark was, God was. And wherever God dwelt on that ark among his people, he was with them, and they knew that they were safe with him. The ark was a picture of the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus came, and he is the very presence of God. The fullness of God dwelt bodily in Jesus. Everywhere that Jesus walks, there is victory. Everywhere you walk with Christ and trust him and stay close to him and follow him, there is victory and there is blessing and bounty. Notice what David says here at the end. He says, when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, when Christ came into the world, God was restoring the fortunes of the church. The church that is hated by the world, the church that is mocked by this unbelieving world, God has promised to restore those fortunes to them. And then notice how the psalm ends. Notice this um, great call for rejoicing and for gladness. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You know, I love the psalms. We saw this back in Psalm 7. You see it again here in 14. You're going to see it as we go through lots of the psalms. There's this 
there's this wonderful contrast and progression that happens in the Psalms. In so many of the Psalms, there is a sense of the reality of depravity, evil, what the world's really like, the rebelliousness of man, what we're living among every day as believers. And then at the end of these Psalms, there are these great calls for shouts of rejoicing and gladness. It, it almost doesn't make sense. You know, the world tells you, you'll have joy and gladness when there's peace and prosperity and everything is right around you in your environment. Fix the environment, then there's joy. And that's not what this psalm is saying. David's not saying, when God eradicates all the wicked in the consummation, then there will be joy and gladness. He says, when the salvation of the Lord comes out of Zion, when Christ comes, when the Redeemer comes, in the face of all of the practical atheism around us, and there's a lot of it, in the face of all the verbal atheism around us, people climbing up on their daddy's lap to smack him in the face while he holds them there so that they can deny him, in the face of all our sin by nature and what we are by nature, knowing that we've been redeemed by grace, David said, let there be rejoicing and let there be gladness because the Lord is a refuge for the righteous. Now, we need this. We need this to get through the rest of our life. You know, I'm going to leave you with this thought tonight. I sometimes think, and we've known such little opposition in this country. We know no persecution. You know, the, the parable of the, the soils. Remember, there is the second soil, uh, the stony ground hearers. And they hear the word. They receive it with joy for a time. And the Lord Jesus says, but there's no root to it. And when persecutions come because of the word, they fall away. I think David is giving us this psalm so that as we live in this world of practical atheists with men and women everywhere around us saying, no, God, there is no God in their actions, in their lives, and in their hearts. And as they are turning their attention to those who are trusting the Lord to heap scorn on them and to deride them and to mock them, in the midst of that, I think David is saying, you have something better because you are wise, because you are trusting the Lord. The Lord has restored the fortunes of Zion in the Lord Jesus, and he is going to bring everlasting peace and joy. So rejoice and be glad and live in light of those truths, knowing that the Lord is with the generation of the righteous. I think it is a remedy for us, for, persecute, for perseverance. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church tonight. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to take these truths we pray that you would give us understanding about them. We ask our God that you would help us to deal honestly with ourselves, with what's going on inside ourselves, with the thoughts that we have about you. We pray that you would shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. We pray that you would give us the illuminating work of your spirit. We pray that you would not let us be like what we have been or what those around us are like who in their hearts say there is no God. We pray, our God, that you would draw near to us, that you would remind us that you are with us because you were with your son and because he is with us. We pray that you would remind us that you are our refuge and hiding place. We pray that you would make us a people who continually call on you and who rejoice and are glad because of the salvation that you have given us in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>